Welcome to Behind Startup Lines, where founders share insider tales of building their business with a spotlight on the sales journey. Join us today as we chat to Marcus Ginn, the successful CEO and founder behind not one, but two thriving ventures in unique industries. Marcus highlights the importance of pinpointing your ideal customer and solving their problem from the start, rather than seeking a market for your product. Discover his journey of building a sales team, nailing that crucial first hire, and finding the perfect mix of skill and experience in the early stage of a startup. As his team flourished, Marcus transitioned to my pod structure and cultivated a strong company culture from day one. Learn from his hard-earned lessons and gain insights into what investors look for in your go-to-market strategy. Get ready to be inspired and enlightened by Marcus's incredible entrepreneurial journey. Ready? Then let's dive in. Today, we welcome Marcus Gen, founder of Adozo. Welcome, Marcus. Hi, good to see you, Phil. How have you been? Now, I, I know you for Adozo, but you don't just have one business, do you? You're actually running two businesses at the moment. Perhaps we could start off with telling us a little bit about your uh, the empire that you're building. Uh, sure, yeah, absolutely. So uh, my first business, uh, HPS, is a service business for the commercial real estate sector, uh, specifically facilities management. The focus is on providing total facilities support to uh, purpose-built student accommodation and built-to-rent assets. So we've got several hundred people across the country looking after these big, shiny, institutionally uh, invested in assets. Um, and then uh, I moved on from there to found Adozo. Uh, I put a really great uh, executive leadership team into HPS so that uh, it, it effectively runs itself. Uh, and then I've been the full-time CEO of Dozo for several years, and that's a, a tech platform for the commercial real estate sector. Specifically, we bring together valuable data sets and tools on a platform to make it faster and more accurate to value and ultimately then transact commercial real estate. Our main customers are valuers and agents um, and investors working in organizations like JLL, CBRE, and they're all across the country. So where did you start out, Marcus, with the Dozo? And when did you launch the business? So um, my I started a Dozo uh, four or five years ago with my good friend and co-founder, Andrew, who is a chartered surveyor. that spent a couple of decades working with commercial real estate, had lots of frustration with the limited tech stack available to him and other people in his profession. Uh, and we felt that the industry needed uh, a fresh approach uh, a fresh tech option to help it become more efficient and accurate of what it was doing. So that was four or five years ago. And when you kicked off the company, did you have customers already or were you responding to a specific client need or, or tell us a bit about those early customer wins? Well, whilst I understood to some degree the commercial real estate sector having built a service business within it, it was really that the, the first customer for whom we were trying to solve the problem was my co-founder, Andrew who at that stage was a, an equity partner in one of the country's largest uh, regional surveying firms, you know, real estate advisory firms. So we started with his pain points, with the inefficiency that he perceived, with the limitations of the existing tech providers. Uh, and we started to conceive of a, a product solution to the problems that he'd identified. Our next step was to go and speak to people that he knew in the sector, other people working in valuation and agency, in commercial real estate to people valuing for banks, people who are selling, buying on behalf of their clients, 
offices, retail, industrial space. Um, and really, we took their, some of those early customers with us on journeys. We developed our initial proposition, our MVP. And I think what was really useful was then we, when we started working with a, a new set of stakeholders in some of the largest brands. So quite early on, we took our MVP to some brands like JLL, CBRE, Allsoft. So big brands in UK commercial real estate and, and globally. Uh, and they liked the proposition that we were bringing to them and they supported us as we then iterated the product to achieve true product market fit. Uh, and, and the big learning there was that to get product market fit, you do need to iterate product uh, in partnership with your future clients. Now, a lot of early stage companies who want to service those big client bases or those blue chip companies, one of the biggest challenges is obviously getting their attention. How, how did you even get in the door of companies like JLL? Because you were unknown at the time. Yeah, we were helped by having some very supportive and very relevant investors with backgrounds in commercial real estate. So using our network was key. Uh, I think the other thing is, uh, one of the learnings from the last few years is, is that these big logos can be very intimidating to entrepreneurs starting out. And actually they're run by human beings and they've got some really nice, uh, very inquisitive people, uh, including in senior roles, that if you uh, properly articulate how you might be able to be useful to them, they will take a meeting. Uh, so look, we used our network, but I think we also worked hard to articulate to some senior people in those organizations, how we might be able to help them solve problems we'd identified within their sector. Right. And did you have a clear idea of what your ideal customer profile looked like in the early days? Did you, did you go as far as sketching that out or was it really trial and error? I think we were fortunate in that regard because my co-founder, um, as I say, came from a specific vertical where he'd been a commercial real estate valuer and agent. And it was as his pain points that we were initially trying to, to, uh, to solve. Uh, we were pretty clear from the off that we weren't producing a product and trying to find a market for it. We were starting with markets with identified problems and trying to solve those problems with new product. So uh, the, the, the center of our Venn diagram has remained chartered surveyors, commercial surveyors, valuers and agents, albeit we're now working with a wider set of customers, including uh, developers and other kinds of real estate professionals. And how important is that, do you think, in the early stage of building a business that you're clear on what that customer profile looks like? Because it sounds like you had a very good idea of whose problems you were solving, but a lot of businesses often think they can solve problems for many different groups. Yeah, look, both the businesses that I've grown have been vertical focused. So the first one doesn't just provide facilities management to the commercial real estate sector. It, 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 it's got a core focus on purpose-built student accommodation and built to rent and the problems that are specifically experienced by asset owners and managers within those verticals. So I suppose I brought that philosophy into a dozo. Uh, and one of the reasons I was keen to found the business was I felt we had a clearly identified customer group with clearly identified needs. Uh, yeah, look, we've all seen other businesses produce some really clever tech uh, and some really innovative product, but then spend a long time trying to find product market fit, trying to find a market at all. So I think we were fortunate in that we, we came at it from the perspective of how can we solve problems 
customers that we know and understand. Yeah, one of the things that I often see happening early stage companies is that they build these huge uh, products that are trying to do many different things, whereas perhaps focusing on solving one part of the problem is really what gets you traction. Would you agree with that? Would, would, is it better to build a, a battleship than perhaps a, a, a submersible? Um, it's more manageable. Yeah, look, what you're saying resonates and, and we made some of those mistakes too. I, I think in the early days when you are trying to establish product market fit, there's a risk of you trying several different things in uh, your eagerness to try to uh, gain a foothold uh, to see which will give you your foothold, your beachhead. Um, and yeah, the ideal thing is that you should be as focused as possible. Uh, so one thing at a time, uh, build it as quickly as you can with as, as light a touch as you can in terms of the development work required. Test it in terms of its impact in the market. And then another lesson is you've got to be prepared to accept that the thing you've built isn't working. Bid it and move on to the next thing. So I think that's a better approach than having several irons in the fire. Yeah, look, we, we did a combination of these things. So uh, in the early days, we, we, had a, we had a couple of different uh, concepts that we were trialing. Uh, we did then focus pretty ruthlessly on one. So Dozo Maps is a digital mapping platform that identifies buildings, their title, their site areas, title boundaries, uh, helps with the production of valuation reports, marketing brochures. We identified that, that a, an easy to use modern software application in that space was a pain point that we could cater for. Uh, and then we focused ruthlessly on it. But prior to that uh, light bulb, we had been doing a couple of different things. There'd probably been feature creep on the platform. So it was when we started to focus on one thing and doing it beautifully and taking that to market and focus go to market strategy, the business really took off. Having then done one thing beautifully, you, you earn the opportunity to go and do other things. So the platform has expanded greatly since then. We've gone from one to three products, but crucially uh, products two and three were possible because of the foundation we've built by ruthlessly focusing and executing with our first proposition. If we tried to do three at the same time, I believe we would have failed. And that feedback from early customers is really important and it helps you develop the product, but it can also be a bit of a challenge when you start building to meet the need of a marquee account or customer who influences your product roadmap. Did you ever have to deal with that? We did, but for us, it was actually very positive. So uh, that there's, a, uh, there's something to avoid in uh, key account engagement at an early stage, which is that you you get distracted by the requirements of a client uh, or a prospect and you build features into the application that serve the needs of one business, but not your entire market. I think we, we were we were we were fortunate again because of our vertical focus that when we engage with those early top logos and they gave us feedback on the product, everything that they asked us to do to the product became beneficial to future customers. We didn't go down any rabbit warrants, and, and again, I would trip back to the fact that we had a clearly defined market strategy. If we'd been selling to four or five different types of customer and different types of vertical, we would have got lost in trying to uh, uh, cater for all the requirements. 
So at what point did you hire your first salesperson? Because I take it you were doing the sales in the early days, were you? Yeah, founder-led sales um, to begin with. Uh, and I enjoyed it uh, because you're when you're doing your founder-led sales, you're, you're, you're seeing up close, face-to-face, in the room, what the impact of your proposition is on your target audience. Uh, initially, as a hypothesis, you know, before you've built anything, and then through the later stages, MVP, and then early stage product. But then you've got to ultimately, for a business to grow, <laughs> we've got dozens of people in the business now, you do need to start hiring. So you know, like most um, small organizations, you, you, you do it incrementally. So, you know, you start with sales hire number one, uh, and then you start with, you know, dev hire number two, and you build it incrementally from there. Um, and we were fortunate in the early days in, 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 in identifying a couple of really great people to work with that ended up staying in business for quite a while. And what was the profile of sales hire number one? Was it an experienced operator or somebody that could work with you to close deals? Yeah, we, we hired someone that had a um, background in commercial real estate, um, not uh, a background in software. Um, and that worked pretty well because it, it meant that we were able to closely identify with our customers as we sold to them. Um, and then as we evolved the team, we focused more on bringing uh, SaaS sales experience into the team um, and increasingly, uh, you know, so a SaaS leadership experience to build that scalable, repeatable revenue model. And what are some of the challenges you found as you started to add more people to the sales team then? Oh, I think what you learn when you scale any business, so I've seen this a couple of times now, is you know having gone from concept to early stage service or product to product market fit, it then all becomes largely about systems. Because to scale a team, to to scale a prod dev operation, to service an increasing number of clients, you know, you've got to have scalable systems to do that. They're supported by the right tech stack uh, and led by people who have got the skills to um, you know take a business from from a certain size to the next level that you need to be operating at. So. So it's about having the systems and it's about having people in the leadership roles that are comfortable with the rate of growth that you're going through, I think. And what were some of the, the systems that you put in in the early days that really made a difference to help you with that traction? I mean, some of them sound really banal, but getting your first CRM system in place is absolutely crucial if you're building out a sales team. Uh, you know, in the early days, you're talking to a handful of clients, you can manage it on Excel. Uh, but as soon as you've got a team of salespeople and hundreds of customers, a customer success team, you know, you've got to have a, a decent uh, tech infrastructure to manage that. Similarly, on the prod dev side, having the right uh, software applications to manage our uh, prod dev process was, was critical. Um, and then along, along with that, you, you, you're... Right. And what CRM did you opt for? Oh, we went for HubSpot. Um, so... Not not as complicated to uh, implement as a Salesforce. Uh, we may yet evolve to Salesforce in the future, uh, but at the moment we've we've put a lot of effort into optimizing HubSpot to 
manage our team and processes. It seems to be doing a reasonable job. Um, can we talk just a little bit then about the the talent that you attract at various stages of growing the business? Because you talked about different people doing different roles there. Uh, one of the questions I get asked an awful lot is really what first hires look like. Um, and I talk about this idea of if you are doing the selling as a founder, it's good to have someone who can carry the bag for you, i.e. someone you can work closely with, who can learn the, the approach, can help you move deals through the cycle, because follow-up is often a challenge. You have a lot of things to do in running a business, and having someone who can just keep conversations going and put proposals in front of people can really help. And that's not necessarily an experienced seller. But of course, there comes a point when you do need to start hiring experienced sellers into your team. And I'm interested in your journey in that front, if that's how it worked for you, or if you you felt you could bring experienced operators in much sooner. Yeah, I think that what you've just outlined feels very familiar. When, you, when you're making your very first hires, I think you're looking for people with a, a bit of entrepreneurialism, uh, people that accept that there's not going to be the structures, systems, processes that I've just alluded to. You know, you're a very different business at 30 people than you are at three. Um, so the right people coming into an organization in, in your, as you, when you're two, three, four, five, six people, they enjoy a degree of chaos and they enjoy, uh, you know, uh, the fact that it's, it's pretty unstructured. Uh, and then as you go from there, I think you are looking for people that bring and want to operate within. Uh, an environment that has more structure. Okay, great. Thank you, Marcus. Um, can we talk a little bit about incentivizing sales teams then and what you've used in the past successfully to reward uh, your sales team members? Sure. Uh, another really important area uh, and one that we've reviewed regularly over the years, including some work that we did with you a couple of years ago. Uh, and I think that evolves as you grow. Uh, particularly when you're in the early stage of the business, it's difficult setting targets uh, because it, it, it's difficult to forecast when you're in very early stages. As you get more established, that forecasting becomes more predictable. And so it becomes easier to set targets for the team and, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and set remuneration uh, alongside it. But look, we're, uh, we're the sorts of things that we are uh, incentivizing our team to deliver in the go-to-market team are, are uh, it's predominantly around uh, contract value acquired and retained. Uh, but we've also got a lead gen function. So we've got targets in terms of new prospects that we're putting into our sales process. Uh, and, and there's different incentives around that stuff too. And how do you get that balance or, or in your experience that what works in terms of the balance of, you know, salary versus commission? Do you have a a number or a way in which you split that to make sure the incentive is right? Yeah, it's, look, it's it's important to get that balance right, isn't it? Um, I, I think you, you want to have a, a big opportunity for the commercial team members so they feel that if they if they really perform, they can be added a significant amount to their uh, on-target earnings. So, you know, in SAS, well, we often talk about the potential for earning up to 100% of your salary in a, in comp. You know, it doesn't always happen, but it's nice for the structure to be able to facilitate that for star players. Uh, otherwise, look, we just work with each part of the team and each team member to make sure they've got a, a market rate salary that reflects their level of experience uh, and then that they feel they've got 
clearly defined KPIs linked to their comp scheme so that they can really get out there and uh, uh, generate the sort of on target that they want to over the course of the year. Now, we, we've read and, and I've experienced this through the teams that I've helped build is uh, good incentive plans incentivize the right behavior, um, incentivize the wrong behavior, and then uh, salespeople will go chasing after that because it's a big part of their earnings. Have you ever had an experience where you've incentivized the wrong behavior in a sales team that has resulted in you having to change it later on? And, and what was the impact of that? Yes. Uh, if we put quite a lot of focus a while back on the number of new logos acquired, and we found that the sales team uh, did what it was asked and started acquiring a large number of new logos, but, but very small accounts, <laughs> uh, which brought other problems around uh, reducing average revenue per client, putting pressure on customer success. So we quickly uh, revised our approach there about what kind of clients we wanted to put into the funnel. So yeah, you do need to be careful what you wish for, Phil. Good. So bringing the company coming forward to today and, and where you are, bigger team, how many people in your sales team today? Uh, in the, across the total go-to-market function, there's nine people and you've got a sales team of half a dozen. Right. And how have you broken that down in terms of, of functionality? Is it everybody just selling into whoever you ask them to go and speak to, or have you got some structure around that? Yeah, we've put some structure around it. We've split the sales team to do different pods, focusing on different parts of our customer base. Then within the pods, we've got some clearly defined roles, uh, one, one role more focused around, around um, building uh, opportunities at the beginning of the funnel, and then the other role roles more focused around um, developing pipeline, closing opportunities and account management. And that all sits alongside customer success as well. Um, and in terms of what uh, you drive of inbound interest versus outbound interest, what's the mix generally been like that? Are you more dependent on people coming to you to ask for, for this product or are you having to go out there and sell it? And is there an optimal balance in your experience about how you build that awareness driving inbound and that proactive outbound? Well, first of all, you do need both. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't think any uh, SaaS business, uh, perhaps no business should just be focused on outbound sales. So we, we focus on uh, brand marketing activity, uh, content generation, uh, PR events uh, to build the Adodo brand in the market alongside uh, marketing lead gen activity. Uh, and, and that produces a steady stream of lead gen. Uh, and then as we grow, we increasingly get referral uh, inbound. But then of course the sales team has got to produce a lot of its own momentum and pipeline as well. So we're doing both both things at once. And yeah, I think you've got to achieve the right balance between the two, haven't you? Um, so we're, we're constantly looking at how much investment should be going into marketing uh, the lead gen that brings versus the uh, the the stuff that we do in the sales team to build opportunity at the beginning of the funnel. Okay, so we're operating in, we're recording this in March uh, 2023. It's a pretty interesting time in the market. Uh, we're seeing a lot of businesses struggling at the moment with either closing deals or uh, getting commitments, I guess, on, on contracts. Um, how do you how do you make sure that the team stays positive and motivated during these really tough times like we're experiencing at the moment? And perhaps you're not. Perhaps Adozo is smashing it. <laughs> I mean, 
we're doing okay, thankfully. Touch wood. Um, you know, we've we've got a good team. Uh, we've got a, a good set of products, um, and we're doing okay. But 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 you're right. There is a general aura out there at the moment of this being a difficult time. Um, it feels like we've been in that sort of space one way or another for a few years now, doesn't it? So uh, I think we focus in the team on what we call trying to go from good to great. We 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 acknowledge that we are in control of the extent to which we improve our own process in order to better serve our customers and achieve better results. So, you know, we are constantly looking at uh, the processes that we use, the the structure of the team and our targeting, um, our pipeline management, the way in which we are describing Idozo to customers, whether we're best representing the product and its benefits. Um, and I think in challenging times, all you can do really is focus on what you do and on, and on, and on striving for excellence, striving for excellence. Have you had to uh, bring the team together more often? Because I imagine now people are still working either hybrid. Are you are you hybrid or, or fully remote? So uh, most of our prod dev team work from home because uh, following COVID, there was an overwhelming opinion from those guys that they'd be more productive working in a quiet home-based environment. So I remember when we were all in the office, they were buying increasingly elaborate noise-cancelling earphones so they couldn't hear those those guys in the sales team on the other side of the room. But the, the commercial team is predominantly office-based, yeah, th- at least three days a week. Uh, and we do that because it brings in energy. You know, I think you can sell from home. Lots of people do. Lots of businesses are entirely remote, so good luck to them. But we, we find value in having a central London office, bringing everyone together several days a week. Uh, and it's a great group of people. And, and I find that they learn from each other and they feed off each other in terms of energy. And how does that impact relationships with other departments? So sales working closely with marketing or even feeding back into product, how important is that? Well, marketing is here in the office with three days a week as part of the commercial function. So we don't, we, you know, we don't separate our marketing, customer success and, and sales. We're one commercial team. And, and then in terms of the rest of the business, uh, we make an effort to maintain communication. So that's regular town hall meetings, all hands meetings, uh, virtually and in person. It's regular social events um, to bring everyone together in person. So you don't get the same level of camaraderie and informal informational exchange that you would do if everyone was based in an office together. There are downsides, but I think you need to balance that with the upsides and the fact that some colleagues feel they're much happier and more productive working either from home or partly from home. And you've got to bridge the gap with the right rituals, conventions, and and create reasons for people to come together to uh, collaborate. So if you were to do this all over again, Marcus, uh, what would you do differently next time? Right. (laughs) Well, lots of things, obviously. Um, We touched on one of them earlier, which is build fast, test um, with your customers, whether what you build is of value, and then be prepared to discard things as you go. Don't get too wedded or too um, too uh, preoccupied with some cost fallacy. Um, don't try to do too many things at the same time, particularly whilst you're trying to establish product market fit. Uh, focus on systems as early as you can, probably earlier than you think you need to. 
focus on key hires a little bit earlier than you think you need to. These are some of the things that if I could write myself a letter five years ago, I'd, I'd uh, be grateful for that advice. And you got external help as well, didn't you? You went to people that had, had done this. We did a little bit of work together, but also others. How important was that in helping you figure this out? Oh, really important and, and continues to be because uh, you were still on our journey. So yeah, we did some work with you. We've had very supportive non-exec directors throughout our journey with experiences of, of, of t- real estate, of technology and of prop tech. Uh, and at the right uh, junctures in our journey, I'm keen to bring in experienced consultants who've been there and done it before, alongside uh, bringing the right people into the executive team to uh, take us on the next leg of the journey. There is no, ultimately there is no uh, easy way to substitute experience. You can hire very inherently capable people into your business, but you do need the right quota of experience uh, because, you know, you asked me about lessons learned a minute ago. You know, people with that experience bring with them the mistakes that they observed in their previous roles as well as the successes. And that makes it all the more uh, easy and efficient to go about scaling the business from here on. Great. Thank you, Marcus. Is there anything we haven't talked about, which you think is just useful for any founder to know about the sales aspect of building their business? Anything we haven't talked about? Well, look, we talked about what we wouldn't do again in, in terms of the things that we think we, we would want to do again, and we do want to continue doing. That building a strong culture in the business um, is, is important, and we've got that within our commercial team and more widely. There's an energy there. There's a sense of camaraderie. Um, I think bringing in right, the right committed shareholders with the right same objectives is useful and has been useful to our go-to-market journey. So if, if the investors that you bring in are relevant to your vertical, to your mission, they can usually provide some very useful advice and introductions. Uh, and then the, the other thing that we've talked about today that ultimately has served as well is being clear about the, uh, the vertical or verticals that we wish to serve so that we remain very customer-focused. Great. Thank you, Marcus. So I'm going to wrap up our conversation with just some quick fire questions um, that you won't have had a chance to prepare for. So these aren't, uh, we're not looking for deep responses here, but uh, let me know what, what you think of these. Okay. Um, so here's a quick fire uh, wrap up session. Um, let's talk about investors first. So how much faith do investors put in your sales pipeline when they're considering whether to invest with you or not? Well, I don't think it's the most important thing they focus on. I think they want, they're more interested in what's happened to date as proof that you found product market fit. And then I think to a reasonable degree, there's an assumption that your growth rate to date can be sustained or improved upon with the right investment and strategy. Great. Thank you. What's the most overused word in a sales pitch deck? <laughs> Huge market. <laughs> uh, great. Thank you. Um, what does a bad customer look like if you get a wrong type of customer for your business? <laughs> okay, okay. Someone who's incredibly nice to you that makes you really think that they want to buy what you're selling, but ultimately uh, won't because it's a very time-consuming sales process. Right. It's sort of death by a thousand Zoom calls. Okay, final question for you, Marcus. Um, when hiring a salesperson, what would you opt for? Someone who's an introvert or someone who's an extrovert? 
I wouldn't focus on either of those two things. I'd want someone that's intelligent uh, and someone that's coachable and someone that's motivated. Coachable is really important, isn't it? Can they grow with the business? Because you're growing, you're learning, and it's that adaptability. Great. Thank you, Marcus. Well, there you have it. Uh, insight to what it takes to build not one, but two successful businesses. Um, thank you, Marcus, for joining us today. Um, we've heard about how important it is to use our investor relationships to open doors, particularly into those blue chip customers. I've seen that uh, replicated in a number of areas and something that uh, if you'd like to a little bit more information on, I have a really good article to share. So get in touch with me directly and I'll, I'll ping that to you. Um, Thank you, Marcus, for using the example of establishing beachheads heads of, of as you go to market. Very important part of what we, we do. It's finding that first customer segment and then building out from there, but not being too influenced by product requests, feature requests that customers want early on. Just using that as part of your roadmap could be very helpful for you growing the business. Uh, and clearly having a defined segment to go after and to break that sales process into its constituent parts, as you talked about, really sounds like a helpful way for you to stay on top of making sure that you're raising awareness, that you're engaging the right customers, that you're taking them through a buyer journey in a structured process. So really helpful insights. Um, is there anything that you'd like to, any last words of advice you'd give any founder who's about to start out on this journey themselves? Speak to Phil. He's, uh, he'll provide you with some great advice. How about oh, you're too kind. You're too kind. Marcus, huge thank you for your time today. Uh, really good to speak to you. Great to hear Dozo's doing so well. Can't wait to see where you're going to take it next. Thank you. Great to see you. Take care. The pod model that Marcus discusses is a prime example of an agile sales methodology that has proven successful for numerous early stage companies. If you're interested in learning more about this innovative pod structure, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter, where you can find me as at Phil Guesty guest with a Y on the end. Alternatively, you can reach me via phil at revcelerate.com. To discover more inspiring founder stories like Marcus's, be sure to hit subscribe. If you have any questions you'd like me to ask our guests, don't hesitate to email me at the same address, phil at revcelerate.com. I'm eager to hear from you and address your queries in future episodes. Thank you for tuning in to Behind Startup Lines, Join me next time for more captivating stories from founders who are reshaping the business world. And remember, when you think you're done, you're only ever 40% done. So keep going. This is Behind Startup Line signing off. Over and out.